Welcome to For Fintech's Sake, hosted by Zach Anderson Pettit. Zach is managing director of an accelerator called Fountain City Fintech and VP at MBKC Bank. For Fintech's Sake is a broad look at the world of fintech. Building the future of financial services requires deep understanding of both technology and finance. From the perspectives of founders, investors, and incumbents, we will explore the stories of people living at the intersection of finance and technology. All opinions expressed by Zach and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect those of MBKC Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. This is your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest this week is Sheil Monat. Sheil's a partner at 500 Startups and presides specifically over the fintech vertical at 500 Startups. We got together last time I was in San Francisco and did an interview at the 500 offices right after they had started a new batch. The atmosphere was cool. There were all kinds of startups running around and buzzing. It was a good place to do an interview. We discussed a lot. We talked through Shield's desire to kind of want to be a quote unquote businessman as a kid and do quote unquote businessman things uh, all the way to his time at Carnegie Mellon and beyond. One of the most fascinating things about Shield's life from my point of view is his time at IndyCore and his time working with Kiva at IndyCore. Uh, he was boots on the ground in India building partnerships with microfinance institutions. So one interesting part of that that I paused on but wasn't thinking quickly enough or clear enough uh, to actually ask the question about or comment on when we were talking about it is why Shield got involved at that point in his life with this kind of philanthropic thing. I'm starting to notice a corollary across humans of wanting to give back and feeling lucky early. They're in their early 20s. They're way too young to think about philanthropy and to think about you know, giving back because they haven't had much of a chance to receive other than kind of being born into a good position and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm realizing that the appreciation and energy in the world that that creates actually turns into good things in someone's career. And secondly and more capitalistically oriented, the desire to give back leads to some really interesting giving positions in the world. What I mean by that is it's kind of a unique way to build a network. So especially a network of folks that are more seasoned than you. Many of these successful and helpful people are in the later stages of their lives. They're starting to work with nonprofits. So if you can spend time giving back early in your career, you can get to know a lot of really fascinating people and you can actually do something good for the world, have a reputation of doing something good for the world. Like the, the network reason is not the reason to get involved, but good things come out of it. And then as Shield's career progressed after Kiva, from being a founder to an investor, it seems like the general giving nature has built goodwill that paid dividends for him down the line. The thing is, you'll hear him say that this wasn't some big elaborate plan. He didn't think through his, you know, 20, 50 year strategy. One of the favorite things that I hear him say is at the time, it just seemed like something interesting to do. As someone personally who does not plan much, but keeps pushing forward and just trying to find kind of the most interesting and challenging things to work on, I love that takeaway. Just keep finding the next track, follow that track, find the track after that, keep going, keep going, keep going, and eventually you look back and you've covered a lot of ground. We also cover a couple good examples of that in the, inter in the interview. Two significant regulation changes in two different industries led to significant outcomes in Shield's career. 
two major lessons come out of that for me. One, pay attention to the quote unquote boring, boring compliance and regulatory stuff. One, it isn't actually boring if you dig into it and have the proper context around what you've been learning. Second, there is gold in them that are regulation changes. So it's really worth paying attention to and understanding. Listen to Shield's story around it and I think you'll kind of understand where I'm coming from. Shiel also shares his framework for investments and digs into his opinions around the future of banking, especially community banks. That was kind of an interesting tangent. Uh, it was a blast of a conversation in general. I learned a ton. And honestly, for me, this interview is a bit surreal. As a Kansas City boy trying to break into the coast a year ago, just getting Shiel to answer an email was a big deal for me. So sitting down with the human that is Shiel, getting to know him truly as the person behind the public persona, was number one, a little bit weird, but number two, really a full circle moment and very enjoyable for me. Um, so I hope you enjoy it too. Without further ado, my interview with Sheil Manat. Let's start with Sheil in the early days. So sure. where'd you grow up? Yeah. That whole thing, like leading up to Carnegie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I actually like, as, as a kid, we moved around a little bit, but mostly in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was kind of like in the bad kid, but nerdy crew in school like we got in trouble but we also got like pretty good grades <laughs> um and i i think i started i knew early on i wanted to be a businessman okay like whatever that means where did that come from um i think like family so um my not my immediate family um but my extended family my mom's side of the family in india a lot of them are in the different businesses and they've been always figuring it out like doing various things and that was kind of in my blood a little bit i right. guess so were your parents first generation immigrants then yeah my dad came over in 74 my mom came in 79 okay how how long had they been here when they had you yeah so i was born in 82 so okay so not long not long yeah my mom had, yeah my mom had just been here three years not even and i was born wow yeah. Okay. So you wanted to be a businessman. Yeah. Whatever that means. Did you do businessman things like in high school? Or yeah. Or? Yeah. 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 I did. So I mean, like in a very minor way, but you know, I was like, I fixed computers. I uh, was a DJ. I just thought of like stupid things. And I think that's actually a theme throughout. Probably. I, I mean, I'm assuming you looked at my LinkedIn. So like there's all these like little things that I've done that were businesses you wouldn't say startups necessarily. <laughs> You'd say like businesses and that's sort of, I've always done those. Okay. So you do businessman things. You're running around Pittsburgh. You yeah. end up at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Which is in Pittsburgh as well. Yep. Um, I, I loved it there. I think I really came out of my shell there. Um, Why? I think, I think college is a good place for that because, sure. you know, like everything's in high school is much more like this, like kind of, I grew up in like suburban Pittsburgh and you don't have a bunch of people that are just like you versus in college you do. Like I went to Carnegie Mellon, it was more nerdy, um, people doing interesting things, probably smarter than where I went to high school. Sure. Um, so I, I loved it. I just had such a good time in college and I, I think like really came out of my shell as I said. So coming out of college, yeah, you worked at Cerner. Yeah, KC. Like what were you in Pittsburgh? Were you working in Pittsburgh? I was in Where Pittsburgh. Was the... Yeah, they recruited me out of college. Uh, How many uh, employees when you started? I don't remember. any idea. In the hundreds, though. Wow. Yeah, um, that's so, wild. 
And at that time, like they had won all these awards. It was like the best place to work, all this stuff, uh, supposedly. And then when I got there, you know, it was my first real corporate experience, obviously. Sure. Just graduating from college. It wasn't great. well i mean this was the heyday right so this was was i mean you were probably there close to the time when neil patterson wrote that email about the parking lot you got it okay yeah yeah Yeah. that's some trivia that our listeners can google neil patterson parking lot cerner if you went to business school you probably know (laughs) this to some degree um but it is definitely googleable anyways okay so that's fascinating did you learn anything there that was maybe learn things you don't want to do again or any takeaways that like have leveraged themselves throughout the rest of your You know, life? it's funny. I'm sure there are. I just can't think of them right now. I spent a lot of time there. I was there two and a half years. Um, and I was implementing healthcare software at hospitals. I was I was actually primarily... Um, I So I st- one of the things I studied is human-computer interaction. Okay. And so I was... Uh, liaising between our end customers, which are the doctors and nurses yep. that serve patients around the world, yep. and our engineers. So I was kind of in between. So I was traveling around, meeting with the doctors and nurses, trying to eliminate clicks from their lives so that, to make their lives easier. Oh, I'm sure you learned like some product stuff and like some behavioral definitely. psychology stuff and definitely, whatever else. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and I started out in one of our like flagship products. It's called FirstNet. It was our emergency room software product. And um, it was going really well. And it was, it was a fun group to work in. And then um, the head of the group got poached to lead this new division, which was around patient billing. Poached yeah. within the same organization. The same, okay, within gotcha. The company. Gotcha. You got promoted, I guess, or yeah. whatever. Uh, Poached moded. I'm with you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, so, and then he took me with him. And this new group that we were in sucked. It was like, it was the worst software product. Like nobody wanted to buy it. The other one was like the leader, like everyone wanted it. And this new one, like nobody wanted it. So it was a shitty job. You got the redheaded stepchild kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then I left and I went into management consulting. Actually, I realized that with this billing product, a lot of things we were trying to solve with software actually are not software problems. They're like business problems. And, hmm. um, so I found this consulting firm focused uh, boutique on focused on healthcare, really great outfit called the Chartist Group, and I went there for a little while. And uh, actually, wait, you probably have like more questions. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm just, no, no, I just no. Keep, keep going. Keep going. I'm I'm kind of like letting you babble until we get to Kiva because most of my questions okay, cool. are about so let's Kiva. Skip ahead. But, but yeah. Chartist is like Chartist. Yeah, so it's Chartist, interesting. And then it's a thing you did. It's a thing I did. And then uh, <laughs> and then I was like. Tired of consulting, yeah. um, wanted to give back, so to speak. Uh, okay, to so hold hold on right there. How old were you at this point? I was young. I, the other thing is, I graduated from college when I was very young. So I was so probably, twenty something. Yeah, I was probably 22, 23. So twenty two or twenty three. Yeah, and you're like, oh shit! I've been so lucky. It's time for me to give back. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's, yeah, it was just like. Uh, I, actually, I saw this Hindi movie, and uh, it was called Rang Devasanti, which probably no one listening will know of. Um, I googled it after, did? yeah, after wow. your, one of your interviews. Wow, yeah. Yeah. you really? I didn't get a ton deep. of. I, I mean, I, I googled it, and I was like, okay, it's a movie. Yeah, yeah. and then I kept going. Okay, <laughs> wow. Now, I wonder. I wonder what else you know about me that 
Uh, It'll get weirder. Yeah, just, let's just keep yeah, going yeah, through yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, so, we'll, so we'll anyway, chase the rabbit. So I saw this movie, and I was like, you know what? I like. I want to give back. And this guy had come uh, to my college years earlier talking about this program. Actually, it's funny. I'm wearing the shirt. IndyCore. IndyCore. Okay, yeah, gotcha. So, um, and uh, I applied for this program called IndyCore. Is it fair to say that IndyCore is like Peace Corps Absolutely, India? yeah. Okay. So, so the Peace Corps was kicked out of India in the 70s. Oh. And so never, never went back. And um, so these guys started a program called IndyCore that's like the Peace Corps, but for India, but primarily for Indians outside of India, like me. Like ah, okay, India, gotcha, I grew gotcha. up in America. Yeah. And it was an awesome program with the really high caliber people. Like the other fellows, they're called fellows. There were, there were like uh, 20 of them or 18 of them in my cohort. They were just amazing people. It was awesome. Like super smart people, also super personable, also adventurous. Because yeah. you have to be all these things yeah. to want to do something like this. So then we went to India and we were living on like a buck or two a day in India. And uh, that was great for me. I was living like my borrowers. So we'll talk about Kiva in a second. Yep. But the people that I wanted to serve, I was living their life, which is kind of cool. I get to understand what they're going through and try to build something that makes sense for them was the, was the vision. Um, and it was a really, really eye-opening experience. It's funny, at the time, I thought, you know, I was living on a couple bucks a day or less, and I thought, like, man, it'd be great to have, like, five or ten bucks a day. That'd be amazing. And, and I, I seriously thought about staying in India and working, like, something that, I probably wouldn't get paid very much, but I thought like, yeah, it'd be awesome. It'd be a big change from what I was doing then. What was your day to day at IndyCore? Like, what were you, what were you yeah. doing? So, um, but so so key, so we'll start t- talk about Kiva. So Kiva, so IndyCore was the fellowship, but I was actually working with Kiva, which oh the, okay, so the, it's like a three way kind of weirdness thing going on here. I okay. was the only fellow for whom this ever happened, but I worked with an organization based in America, actually based here in San Francisco, called Kiva. For those of you who don't know, Kiva, K-I-V-A dot org, is a website that allows you to make a loan to anyone um, needing a loan in the developing world. So you, as a American, uh, can use your credit card and give a loan to a farmer in Ghana, for example. That farmer can use that, let's say it's a $300 loan. You can lend them just 25 bucks, though, of that loan. And they can use that loan to buy an irrigation pump that might really change the out their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the early idea. And I was one of the first few uh, people who worked there. So like it was through the fellowship, but actually um, there were only five of us at that time. So Kiva is like this badass brand now that is like yeah. re- referred to as, you know, well, best practice wise, you could consider Kiva, right? So, I mean, it yeah. wasn't that then though, right? What was, no, what it, was, was it nothing, like in the early days? It was nothing then. Um, so Kiva... Um, Nobody knew of us. What did a loan look like? Oh, right? yeah. So, like, go down that rabbit hole. Like, how did how did you go from, like, hey, we have dollars in the U.S. to here's a loan, my friend, the farmer in yeah, Ghana. How, sure. do you get, how do you close that delta? Yeah, sure. So, um, so the way it actually works is we have – I say we, but I haven't been part of Kiva for over a right. But Kiva has microfinance partners on the ground in each of these countries. By the way, now it's in, like, I think 100-ish countries maybe – there are there are Kiva loans, so you can go to the website and make a loan. Most places in the world. Do you still? I do. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, it's fun. Um, 
and it's kind of like being a venture capitalist. Like you're looking through all these people's businesses and yeah. like choosing who to who to lend money to, um, and then you get your money back. You don't get any interest, but ninety nine plus percent of the time you get your money back. Um, but the way it actually works to answer your question is on the ground in these various countries, there are microfinance institution partners. And so your money goes through that MFI. Okay. And then it gets to the ultimate borrower. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So water.org is located in Kansas City. Yeah. And it seems like, so there's a lot of overlap there in terms yeah. of like, we are we are going to empower the MFI. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. But like, there's no need to show that complexity to the right. lender. Right. Because like what the lender cares about is having that relationship with the borrower and they do they are tied to that that exact borrower mm-hmm. and it was your job to build these partnerships right i mean that's what the title was yeah was part- so yeah so i was going around partnerships with the mfis yeah so i was going around meeting with mfis around india and then we actually had um the bigger part of the job was actually fixing this regulatory issue we had which was um people from International people could not lend money into India at that time. Um, hmm. Or there were different, there were certain categories for which you could lend money into India. So we had to convince them that we could lend money into India. And we had this complicated gymnastics around it where basically we can lend money into India, but the India, money has to stay in India for three years. So if I lend you money and you're done with the loan in three months, I don't get the money back like like our other loans. The money actually stays in India and I have to lend it to somebody else in India. How did you figure all that out? Like did you go through like hey, we're not alone, you know, look yeah. over here, look over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Like how like what what was that whole process of figuring that out like? Yeah, it was really complicated actually because um there were a bunch of new rules in place. I didn't really know them. I was new to India. I had gone there as a you know, as a kid growing up. You speak the language? I mean, obviously I, I, a lot of people speak English. But. Yeah, a lot of people speak English. So I do speak the language. Um, and that helps, but probably not that much. Most most people that I was interacting with speak English. But it was really like meeting with accountants and lawyers and then ultimately meeting with like the head of the RBI. So like the Reserve Bank of India, which is oh, like okay. the, yeah. the bank, That's the, the bank. institution. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's like probably like meeting the head of the Fed or something. It was like a really legitimate thing yeah. that I... I think and like twenty something Sheil is sitting yeah, down exactly, with this guy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's actually yeah. Um, it was a female, and um, oh. meeting meeting with her, Great. and she was super sharp. Um, and I, it kind of I was like, okay, like these people don't just get in. They don't pick any idiot off the street for some of these positions, at least. Sure. Um, and then trying to convince her to do our project. Um, so it was cool. It's a really fun thing to do at a young age. And um, one of the things I realized at that time was just coming from America opened up doors that I probably wouldn't have had as a local if I was trying to do that. Like I was able to arrange all these meetings by like knowing people and being from America and that works. How how did your time at Kiva kind of form shield today like is that kind of one of the big yeah. reasons that you're focused on fintech because you could be doing all of the i mean totally, just totally. listening to the pitch you could be doing a lot of different industries yeah, yeah, you're yeah very yeah. focused i think look I, I think the reality is i knew that having a focus would be really helpful mm-hmm. um i think being a generalist being the focus helps me i know 
most of what's going on in our industry. Mm-hmm. I know almost every startup, like, you know, I look every day at like what gets funded and it's pretty rare that something gets funded that I hadn't seen. So that's only possible if you choose an area to focus on right. and try to become an expert in that area. Now, three and a half years ago, I was thinking through what I wanted my area to be. Mm-hmm. And I just made up that I was a fintech expert. And so looking backwards at my resume, you can say like these things were all fintech. Yeah. But you also could say like key was a marketplace. You could all, you could say all these other things if you want. Yeah, to. absolutely. So but I've chosen to spin them all as fintech. And then now that I am and have been doing fintech for a few years, now I actually do know a lot about fintech. That makes sense. I mean, looking back at your career, like I could 100% see you working at like a hedge fund on Wall Street, for God's sakes. I mean, there's all kinds yeah. of different directions that you could have gone. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. But I, I think so. I, I guess like the lesson is for me, it was good to choose an expertise. And then, you know, you start out by like you kind of fake it till you make it. And mm-hmm. then over time, you become an expert. When you say you're an expert, you meet people that are in that field and you, you become an expert. I uh, The overlap is a little ridiculous, actually. Like I had um, kind of my family was not anything uh, close to wealthy growing up. And yeah. then my dad went bankrupt when I was younger. And then I did an internship at an investment bank that shall remain nameless. Um, but it's on my LinkedIn. Just so I don't know why I always say, say that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I always say that, but I do. Um, and it, it all just pissed me off so much. Like the idea of broker dealer versus fiduciary, this whole thing. I was just like, fuck it. I'm spending the rest of my life in fintech. Right? Right. It's the only way. And I'm just, I don't know. I don't know what else I'm going to do. So here we go. Um, anyways. So from there, how long were you at Kiva? A couple years? A uh, year and a half. Year and a half. Okay. And then a little detour to Oral. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, actually. So Oral, I think, started before. It might be out of place on my LinkedIn or something. Mm. But um, there it was when I was a consultant. Um, when I started, uh, the, the company gave me a gift, which was like an engraved iPod. Mm. So you have to think back. For those of you who are old enough, there's the when the iPod Mini came out, probably 2004 uh, or five. Uh, some good, some good commercials. Yeah, yeah. And so you remember the iconic headphones? The headphones were a big part of the commercials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I got them week one of owning this thing. Um, I'm riding my bike. Head like one of the headphones falls out, gets caught in my spokes. Headphones break. So I'm out out these iconic headphones. Go to the Apple Store, which was just getting started at that time. They don't sell the headphones. You had to buy the headphones with a cassette adapter <laughs> and a car, which didn't make any sense. So I thought, hey, like, what if I just make headphones? And I made uh, headphones that looked just like the Apple headphones, but in the colors matching the iPod mini. So it was blue, green, yellow, and pink. And I uh, created this. I moved, went to China for the first time in my life back then, 2005, <laughs> just to figure this out. I guess this gets back to like the entrepreneurial thing. Like if you see a, a need, even if it's a small need, like the yeah. one I found, it's just like, well, there's an opportunity. Why don't I go to China? And so I went to China, met with a bunch of manufacturers, had them made. Um, I initially did an order of a thousand of them. Then I did an order of 10,000 of them. And <laughs> they were, um, I was buying them for like a buck. Wow. Selling them for uh, 15 and $20 depending um, you tell this story so matter-of-factly. It's it's just funny to me. It, the number of people that I've met in my life that are like, oh, there's a problem. Let me go to China, do some research, figure yeah. out to fix it. Let me start with a 1,000-unit you know, order. We'll work up to 10,000 units. I mean, it's like 
that's not a normal human, right? So when you think about like when you think about yourself, and you said in an interview that I listened to with you a while back that it, like you have to be crazy to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Where would you put yourself on the spectrum from like sane to insane? I think I'm pretty sane. Yeah. Um, I and actually I sometimes want to be more insane, um, but I think like the businesses I start, like I know immediately how I'm going to make money. And it's going to be like, usually it's going to be like, sometimes it's profitable from day one. And those are the kind of businesses that I know how to start. But those are not like the, the insane outcome businesses are typically not that way. And so that's something that I've had to like untrain from hmm. myself. And part of that comes from like my upbringing and, and then the untraining of that, the insanity, as you said, would probably come from spending more time in the Bay Area because as you know, like the ideas here that get funded are different than get funded in the rest of the country, rest yep. of the world. Yep. And people do think big and that thinking big may mean not making money for decades, like Uber, for mm -hmm. example. Massive company, but you know, and Lyft in their in their S one said we may never be profitable. And like that sort of thing like doesn't start in other places. So this is something that I've had to unlearn. I'm still slowly like rewiring my brain to think about building a business that like you don't necessarily like that the I the idea is just to attract people to use it and then you'll make money later on so let's let's pull on that thread but like kind of move it over to your time at michigan and your time at B bcg yeah so you were kind of simultaneously at michigan and bcg right so i um i went to Where michigan overlap at least overlap yeah okay so i went to michigan for business school Primarily worked with this professor named C.K. Prahalad. Um, he was an amazing guy. He wrote this book called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. He, he was like one of these business guru guys. He was a professor there. I got to work with him very closely and I just had a great time with him. So that's why I went there uh, and really, really had a good time. Um, he, by the way, told me these like lessons. He told me he told me to do three things. He passed away in 2010, very sadly. Um, but he told me to do three things. He told me to work on hard problems, work on emerging in, in emerging markets if I can, and write about it. And those were like, he said he did those things and he became this very famous author, was on the board of a bunch of really big companies. Yeah. And he said it was really just because he wrote about them. Like He was like, it's not that I'm smarter than everybody else. It's just I wrote about it so people think I'm smarter. And so I've wanted to do that, but I actually haven't gotten around to it. I never, I never write anything. Do you see podcasting slowly becoming a replacement for that? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think with podcasting, though, like there's something about written text mm -hmm. that stays with you. The and evergreen is searchable. nature of it. Yeah, that's it's fair. searchable. Yep. So like, I don't know why Google doesn't actually just have a podcasting app or some get, plug into the podcasting yeah, world. I think they're working on it. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. And, and they should just make every, they should just transcribe everything and make everything yeah, searchable. I think they're working on it. Okay. According to a recent like A16Z podcast um, about podcasting, it was a very, very meta thing to listen to. But according, yeah. according to that, yeah, apparently they're working on that because that's the same thing. I mean, I want to be writing more and more and more, but like, fuck new batch, right? Like all totally. these, all these I never, things. I never, I like, never get around to it, but I could, yeah, I could, I could sit and chat with you forever. Like, of course there's stuff to talk about. It's just writing is hard. Um, so I think ultimately 
you know, like I've even tried ghostwriters, yeah. but I, I never ended up like finishing anything. With yeah. <laughs> so kind of putting a little bit of a bow on the kind of oral thing, moving to Michigan, BCG. Yeah. Looking through that time in your career, it kind of looks like you're doing like you're almost, you know, you're doing that 10 p.m. in the gym, 10,000 free throws. Like you're doing all the things that are giving you the base, the fundamentals, right? Your time yeah. in, with your MBA, the time in kind of this like think inside of the box kind of, you know, yeah. uh, consulting period. So was that part of what you had to unlearn later on? Or is that yeah, actually probably. hugely helpful or both? I think both. I think okay. it's hugely helpful. I think like the BCG background, I love the like analytical skills that you learn at a place like BCG. And is yeah. that truly just, I mean, I haven't worked in this world, right? Yeah. So is that truly just, here's how you actually analyze a spreadsheet. Here's how you think about a balance sheet and income statement. I mean, is it just like a higher level no. version of that or what is it? It's not, here's how you do it. It's like, you have to do it on the job and you freaking learn. Hmm. And um, you build model, all, all this sort of stuff. The stuff that bankers do. I like consultants a lot more than bankers, obviously, because I've been a consultant. Anyway. Um, this isn't awkward now or anything, Shield. This isn't, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I don't like work inside of a bank or anything, dude. So no, it's, yeah, it's cool. It's, it's cool. different, but you know. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, mean, I get it. I, mean, I get it. Yeah. yeah, no, I know what you mean. So, um, <laughs> so it was good. It was good. Like, it's funny that you say, like, I was building a base for what I'm doing now. It's the whole, you know, Steve Jobs says you, you can, instead in that famous speech, you can connect the dots looking backwards. It's really true because, you know, none of the shit made sense back then. But now we're looking back and like, oh yeah, that really is where you built the fu fundamentals for whatever, whatever. I don't know. At the time, it just seemed like an interesting thing to do. And, and it's so, not, so I mean, it seems like during, you had During fun. business school, I actually, I worked at BCG and Amazon both. And I was a product manager at Amazon and uh, that was fun, but actually what happened was like, my boss's boss had worked at BCG. Uh, my B boss's boss from Amazon had worked at BCG. And this is getting I was incestuous. Like, oh, you could just like go, you could go quicker if you want to just go go there first and then, um, and, and was respected. So um, I went to BCG and enjoyed it um, initially. I think there's something about it that works well for me, which is I have probably, as you can tell through this story, Attention deficit disorder, and what do you mean? You're interesting. <laughs> no, I mean I'm always doing different things. The nice thing about consulting is you're working on a project in one industry, and then you're working on a project in a different industry. Yeah. So it's like it's nice. And so continuing the story, um, we so Sean um, Harper, who uh, ended up founding Fee Fighters, I joined him. Um, he and I worked together at BCG. Ah, and um, he we had done some work. So this was a time around. This was in the face of regulation. Actually, you and I were talking about Durban. So yeah, it's perfect. So this Durban's a perfect lead in. So around the time of two thousand eight, nine, ten, there's a lot of regulation coming into place. Yep. And one of the things coming into play was Durban. We didn't work on Durban specifically, but Durban, the other stuff around it. So Durban regulates how much money banks make off of interchange. Yep. And, um, but only banks that are, have greater than 10 billion in assets. Although that changed throughout, Durban was a constantly evolving process. Um, but our clients, which shall remain nameless, asked us. Sounds like they were above the Durban though. Maybe. <laughs> what do we do? Yeah. We're going to lose so much money, mm -hmm. um, on interchange and, um, Basically, one of the answers was 
well, you just pass through a bunch of other fees and you make more money in the end. And so Sean and I said, Sean and I both had run small businesses. I had the, the headphone business. Yep. Um, Sean had a satellite radio business, strangely. So um, <laughs> sure. So uh, we said, hey, this sucks. Like, we're just ripping off these merchants. And so we said, what if we create something that allows the processors to bid on the merchant's business on an apples-to-apples basis? So hmm. you just bid on the amount over interchange per transaction. So a fee and a percentage. And that was the bidding. And it worked out really well. But what happened was, it worked out really well in that we saved tens of thousands of businesses a lot of money. And captured, and captured. a portion of that at least, right? I mean, well, was that kind of the idea? Here's the thing. So you, you nailed it. Um, it'd be great. We saved them a bunch of money, but where we made our money was on not what we saved them, but what they paid. Ah. So they were paying less and less as the marketplace got more and more efficient. They basically (laughs) were getting a sick deal. Yeah. Like they were getting payments for close to free. Yeah, you guys really did build a business to benefit the the merchant there. Yeah, Yeah. but then we, we, you know, early on we were making good money. Right. Because we were taking half of the gross profit of of the payment processor. Oh. But then over time, as the marketplace got more and more efficient, we were making less and less per customer. It was great for the customers. Was the vo- I mean, was the volume growing as you, I it mean, was, so it was kind so, of evening out? Yeah, kind of. But then what we realized was we originally started this business to help small businesses like mom and pop shops, yeah. like whatever. Yeah. We realized that those people actually never came to find us because yeah, they probably they're didn't not, know to look. They didn't know to look. They're not yeah. trying to optimize. So right. the people that found us were either of two kinds. Like we call them people who sit behind a desk. So like a doctor, a dentist, whatever. Sure. They know to like look, hotelier, whatever, um, or online businesses. And we had a ton of online businesses. So we had a bunch of like the big brands, even some of the, several of the big brands today were our customers. They came to us to find payment processing. And so then we said, hey, we have all these online businesses. Why don't we go deeper into that online channel mm-hmm. and online payments channel? Because originally we called the business Fee Fighters because we wanted to be a reverse auction, not just for payments, but for payroll, for insurance, for all these other verticals. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up deciding to just go deeper into payments. We like payments. So we built a payment gateway and a payment processor in one, which actually called it Samurai, which actually very, very similar to what, what Stripe became. Oh, man. Yeah. And we were in the process of raising a Series A and... um we got an acquisition offer from Groupon around the same time that we were in process of raising a Series A. And the offer was compelling, so we took it. So let's let's unpack that, like that last sentence. Yeah. How so compelling is one thing, but like that calculus has to be more than just dollars, right? Like there's emotional aspects there. There's no like doubt. look at where fucking Stripe is today, Absolutely. right? Like there's that there's that to take into account. So what what was that mental calculus like for Sheil? And then yeah. what was that mental calculus like for the rest of the team? Yeah, absolutely. Sounds hard. So actually, um, the mental calculus for me was, we're not doing this. I didn't want to do the deal. And, and how, many, how many people were involved in this? Like the decision? There were like 10 people. Uh, the decision, like four or five, yeah. Okay. You, Sean, probably an investor Josh, or two. Yeah, yeah. Or that, Josh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, investors, et cetera, yeah. Okay. So, um, so Sean and Josh wanted to do it and i think like look for me i was a single guy i had no debt like i had 
a great salary before business school and then I had scholarships for business school. So I had no debt and really an easy low burn lifestyle. Yeah. Actually, this let's bring it back to Kiva. You asked like what what were some of my takeaways from that time? And it was really from Kiva but also from my time in India mm-hmm. and I was living like a peasant. And my takeaway was like I don't need much to be happy. I was having a great time living on a couple bucks a day. That's awesome. And so my takeaway was the things that make me happy are not monetary. So I don't need, like, I, I never need much money to be happy. I have mo- far more than I'll ever need. Um, and so so that sort of continues on to this, in this conversation. You know, we had the ability to make millions of bucks um, in this sale. Yeah. And um, for Sean and Josh... With kids and debt from from graduate schools for, you know, um, Sean's wife is a lawyer. Uh, Sean at MBA. Uh, Josh and his wife also like they have like four degrees between them. So um, a loan or two. Yeah, yeah. Loans involved and like the ability to like wipe that out plus make your make it's your kids secure. Life changing money. College is life changing yeah. money. Yeah. So that was the decision point. And that 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 was sort of the the path of that we went down, and ended up being great for them. Um, and sort of like side note, Sean now runs a company called Kin in Chicago. Uh, it's a homeowners insurance company, kin dot com that you can get your homeowners insurance from. I'm on the board of that company. It's doing cool. super well. Josh co-founded a company called Boom. It's a supersonic jet company. So that's oh, a whole another. Wow, that was a bifurcated path for those two guys. Totally. <laughs> And, and then you're and here. they've raised um, <laughs> and you know um, Kin raised a thirteen million dollar A this past year. Boom raised a hundred million dollar B. I was gonna say that sounds maybe slightly capital intensive, yeah. just a little bit. Yeah, just exactly. a little bit. So yeah. Anyway, long winded way of saying it was not an easy decision. Yeah, there were fights, tears, etc. But in the end, I who knows what would have happened. Yeah. Yeah. How, how does it sit with you today? Like, how, how have you mentally worked great, through that? I've had a great eight years since then. So it's it's awesome for me. I had enough money after that that I could start investing in companies. And that led to, you know, what I'm doing now. So let's 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 go that direction. So I want a quick pit stop at Innovative Auctions before yeah. we before we get there. So d- describe Innovative Auctions quickly. It's complicated. Uh, we, we so run, not quickly. Yeah, <laughs> we run uh, high stakes auctions. We sell assets valued in the multi millions on a bespoke basis. Um, we got into the business in yeah. the top level domains space. So explain like the kind of regulatory shift that led that sure, to yeah. even be an so opportunity. Most of you guys probably won't even know what a top level domain is, but let's just use, let's say um, frameworks that I'm looking at this uh, mic stand. stand yeah. It says frameworks. So their website could be frameworks.com and let's say that that was available, they could buy it for 10 bucks. Um, but let's say frameworks.com wasn't available, it was taken. Um, there's this also, it could be frame.works. And what about .works? You probably haven't seen that. But... There's .com, .net, .org, and .com were the mm. original top-level domains. So this is all the others. This is .bank, .shop, yeah. so, .whatever. But, so, so then there came uh, a bunch of new ones, including the two-letter ones. So 
all the two-letter co- codes are actually country codes. Like .co is actually Columbia. Nobody realizes that yeah. IO means uh, Indian Ocean, right? Exactly. Like nobody understands these things, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you, you got it. AI is Angia. So right. like, um, <laughs> so there are all these two-letter ones. And then ICANN, which is a governing body of the Internet, Internet Corporation for Assigning Names and Numbers, used to be the department, part of the Department of Commerce, hence .com, by the way. Okay. Um. But it spun out as an independent international agency, nonprofit. Okay. So ICANN in 2011 said, hey, we're going to let you make your own dot whatever. So what would you do, Zach? What would your dot whatever be? I mean, if I was a bank, it, like NBKC, it would be NBKC.bank or something okay, so like that. Okay, so you would yeah. buy dot bank, sure. let's say. So if you wanted to own dot bank, you could put up $185,000 to apply to ICANN and then... If you were the only party that applied, you got it, okay? And that's a sunk cost or I get that money back? You don't get that money back. Okay. No, no. And yeah. you have additional, a lot more costs on top of that. Okay. Good. But let's say that, um, let's say that- I'm backing out of this deal, by the way, but you keep can't. going. How much would you be willing to pay to buy .bank? The wrong guy to ask. I know my CEO's gotten in some bidding wars about this thing, so let's go with like 200K. Let's say you'd be willing to pay 200K. Okay. So um, I also want .bank and I'm actually willing to pay a lot more. I'd be willing to pay- Probably, let's say, nine million bucks. Ooh, laying it okay. on the table in here. All right. And then we have a third party here, Mr. Chair. Mr. <laughs> Chair uh, also wants to apply for Dot Bank. Mr. Chair is going to pay eight million. Okay. So in our auction, it's called a second price clock, ascending clock auction. So well, what that means is it's a second price auction, which means it's not the highest bidder's price that wins. It's the second highest bidder's price. It's an ascending clock auction, which means it's timed and it's ascending. So the value goes up every X amount of time. So in our three-party auction, the bidding starts at 600000 and goes up every 30 minutes by another 600000 how did you come up with the second price thing? Because to me, like when I was digging into make, this, so, so, well, yeah. I mean, it, it does make sense. It makes so much sense. It's going to drive the price up and up and up and up and up. I mean, like, at least that's the theory. I mean, it feels like Dan Ariely like designed the damn thing or something. Like, how do yeah, you guys so, figure that out? Yeah. So we like it's actually like known auction theory. Oh, there's a lot okay. of known auction theory. Okay. Okay. And then there's a lot I of stuff. Read that, the known auction theory book. There's yet. a lot of stuff that we're like just kind of making up as we go. But that one wasn't one of them. Okay. Um, because what that does is it allows you to bid your maximum bid. Because you know you don't have to pay your maximum bid if it's way over the second price. Mm-hmm. It allows everybody to say the maximum that they're willing to bid. So second price is the way the auction should be, generally speaking. Um, okay, so in this case, so let's say let's say your bid was a million bucks, not two hundred thousand. Okay. So, so you drop it up out in the I'll second, stop being so cheap. second round. Yeah. And then Mr. Chair drops out at eight million, and so. At eight million, he's out, you're out, and then it's just me left. So I win, I pay eight million bucks. Where does the money go? You tell me. So the money actually gets split evenly between the two of you. You each get eight million bucks out of it. That was our genius. So we're paying. I'm paying you off to withdraw your applications. 
Oh, fascinating. Okay, so at the end of the day, your your ICANN is running this very standard like application system over here through, you know, very standard means, and then you've kind of deviated over here, and you're like, that's not robust enough. Like people are doing yeah. back alley deals. Like let's create a platform to actually do this damn thing. Yeah, figure the thing out over on this other back alley platform that Shield and whoever is built. Yeah, and then you come back to ICANN and say, okay, we've come to a decision. Give me my domain. Yeah, that's exactly right. And wow. You nailed it. And, it, and it turned out to be tremendously successful. We did, you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars of, of domains, and still going today, right? Still going today, yeah. You're not clearly that involved, but um, actually, the thing is, um, I, I am somewhat still involved in it because um, a lot of the stuff that we set up back then, you really couldn't transition to another person. So I, I still end up doing some of them. Actually, just last month, we auctioned off Dot Gay. Huh? Yeah. Can you share who won? I can't. Oh. Yeah, there, we have a lot of confidentiality stuff. I'll say that um, there are folks involved, like some of the largest corporations in the world. Okay. I'd say uh, three of the five largest companies in the world were our customers at, at times. So. Wow. Well, yeah. I just assume that I'm going to see some new like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy website pop up soon or something. <laughs> that's, that's where my head goes. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's that's interesting. Let's let's kind of move into something that's a, a little bit meta in this conversation um, before we jump into Shield, the Angel, and FinTech, that yeah. whole thing. The pitch. Yeah. Why? Like, how the hell did you decide to start that thing? And podcasting was, when you started it, not necessarily, like, obvious. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so podcasting at that time, like, I had been a really early listener of podcasts. Like since I got my iPod before the iPhone, actually I was listening to podcasts. Um, it was always a clunky interface, and then they're kind of, I think probably around the time we started was like a resurgence. So we started in 2015. I had the idea probably in 2014, and um, it was just a resurgence. The idea was, I was watching Shark Tank on TV at home, and I was like, this isn't real. Like none of these deals actually get done, and it's actually like these aren't even like startups that are fundable. Like there was like a towel with a hole in it. Like <laughs> who's funding a towel with a hole in it? Yeah. You laugh and then you look at Snuggy and you're like, fuck. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Should have funded it. Anyway. So um, so I had the idea like why don't I just record some of the pitches? I was an angel investor. I was like why don't I just record some of the pitches that people are, are um, giving me? And so that was the, the original idea. And how the original founders like feel about that? Were they like, yeah, sure, press <laughs> press record? No, actually, nobody wanted to do it. I got no's from like everyone. I probably would have said no too. But then um, the first one I actually recorded was a company. It was my old roommate's company, and I had actually already invested in the company. Or I, okay. I had I had said I, I told him I was going to invest, and then sort of like made it made the investment kind of like through the podcast, but I was going to invest in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. it was a friend of mine. A little Hollywood kind of thing. Yeah, you got to do a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I'm so, uh, and then, you know, I was able to find other friends to be on the on the show. Um, and it got good. It got like really successful. It kind of took off. So tell me, I'm, I think this is one of those examples of like people can go to the podcast and listen to the podcast and learn a lot from it. But tell yeah. me about like the back end of that. Tell me how you grew the thing. I mean, was it very conscious that this kind of took off? Were you like hustling it into this crazy growth trajectory or? Um, yeah, I'd say like 
I think there's a lot of hustle involved, but it wasn't like we didn't have a clearly defined path to growth. Um, we started it, you know, I shared it with my people on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn or whatever. Yeah. So we had some probably hundreds of listeners then yeah. that were just people I knew. Yeah. And, and I co-founder Josh knew. Um, and then, uh, then I started like just searching everywhere, like how to market this thing and like Reddit podcasting thing. And like, I would constantly upvote and like everywhere I could post about our podcast, I would, we huh. ended up getting some press around it. And the thing that really helped us was early on, we did really well on product hunt. Ah, uh. so product, hunt, we were the num- most, we, you know, we, we arranged for it to be like, we arranged everyone to upvote us and all that, you know, the usual shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, and standard. Um, and in then the we, world we now, ended right? up becoming the, um, the most, uh, upvoted thing that day, which was huge. And then that week they had sent a thing of like most upvoted that week. We were the most upvoted that week. And we also were the most upvoted that month, which was wow. like July, 2015 or something. Maybe it was June. And, um, that led to a lot of traffic. So that led to like 10,000 sustained subscribers, which is pretty good. Yeah. That's, I mean, you can build a real revenue, like you can build a, a life on that. Maybe not a whole business, but you can, I mean, 10,000 weekly, you can't really build that much off of it. Actually. Um, we ended up getting, you can tell I'm not making much money on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we ended up getting it to like a hundred thousand, um, over time. And that some of it just grew organically. Um, the main thing was we like got featured by Apple, and that tends to help. Yeah, that that really helped. Yeah. So you're one of the few people I know, if not the only person. I say few people to make it seem like I know more people, but I'm pretty sure you're the only person I know that has exited a podcast. Yeah. So um, talk to me, like, how do you value a podcast? What was that conversation with Gimlet like? I mean, whatever you can share, obviously those are sometimes private conversations, but yeah, we're not allowed to share it. Um, Gimlet actually then got acquired by Spotify. Right. Um, what happened was when we started the podcast, I, so Gimlet was just getting started when we started. And oh, okay. In my head, it's such an established brand. You know, I just think of it as like a, yeah, a part were, of the ecosystem. They were probably ecosystem. less than a year old when we started. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but we really liked their stuff. Um, the startup podcast in particular, we were listening to and really loving it. And so I had emailed them about our podcast. I was like, hey, we're starting a podcast too. Um, meanwhile, our podcast sucked and had no listen. you know, all this stuff. Um, and I had a connection to them through BCG actually, like uh, – XPCG is uh, worked at worked at Gimlet. Gotcha. And so I was like, "Hey, like, here's our podcast. You should listen to it." No response, even though we had a connection. And then, yeah, a year plus later, they reach out and say, "Hey, we we've been listening to your podcast. We like it. Would you consider joining Gimlet?" And that was kind of how that went. It took maybe month of negotiation to get to less emotionally charged than your previous exit maybe <laughs> Way less, yeah <laughs> i mean i had never done the podcast to make money i'd done it to build a name for myself how do they value the podcast is it based on just listeners downloads yeah i'll tell you i think we were kind of like at that time we were making a couple hundred thousand bucks a year okay. in ad revenue okay so it's kind of yeah. So they value it by revenue. Groundbreaking. Yeah. And, and other things Listeners like brand and whatever and, else. Sure, and but. also like what do they think they can do with it? Yeah. So really the real thing actually. <laughs> sounds like pretty much any acquisition in any the tech space at the end of the day. Yeah. So um, 
and they thought they could do a lot with it because they have a lot of listeners for the startup podcast and we're kind of an extension of that we're kind of in that mm-hmm. same vein and so it you know it worked out we have more listeners now than we did then it's been good <laughs> up and to the right yeah exactly all right let's talk uh shield the angel and 500 startups so Starting in, um, we'll, we'll go a little BCGE um, since I've heard you talk about it before, but tell me about the, the Shields four T's. Take me, take me to school <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, so, so it's really about like how do I think about investing and, and what startups do I pick? Yeah. And so really the first T is really team. And at the stage that I invest, which is really early, it's really a lot of times we're changing the business while they're here with us. So... The team is by far the most important. Do they have a team that, do they have a CEO that can clearly define his or her vision and sell me on it? And do I believe that they're gonna be able to sell other customers on it? And do do I believe they'll be able to sell other investors on it? Because I'm not the only investor. Do I believe that they'll be able to sell employees on it? One thing you realize that, you know, most people don't realize is when you're a series A, especially Series B company, the number one job of the CEO is just recruiting and building the team around him or her. So are you able to define, like to show that vision and sell other people on it? That's super important. And then do I think that you're going to be the right leader to lead a multi-hundred person organization? So team. Number two, total addressable market. Is there a big enough market for this thing? And this is something I do a lot of investing internationally, and this definitely comes up internationally where you know, you're investing in a small market. Like if you're going to stay in, I was just in the Middle East. So let's say, let's say Israel. Um, if you're building a product just for Israel, I think Israel population is 6 million people or something. Yeah, yeah. Great place to start. But if that's all you want to serve, it's probably not going to be a huge business. So I'm not that interested. So is the market big enough? Okay. Um, technology. Do you have some technology advantage? Is there technology in the product? A lot of businesses don't have much technology. And... And it could be that I'm missing out because I'm not investing in businesses that don't have much technology. You could say WeWork doesn't have that much technology, mm. but it's a, whatever, $20 billion company now. How do you vet that at seed? Like pre-product half the time. How well, do like, you- What are they building? Are they building something that's going to have technology? And do they have the chops kind of thing? Like is the right technical co It kind of goes involved? along with the team. That's yeah. exactly right. Okay. Yeah. And then um, I would say traction is another T. Sure. Um, have they proven something? And- at the stage that I invest, traction is often not revenue. Traction is often something else. Like, have they gotten over some regulatory hurdle? Whatever. Um, and then, so those are those are four T's. If I had to add a fifth T, I would say it's terms. Like, can we come to terms? Is there some agreement hmm. that we have a, on this investment? And then the sixth T is totally random. It's just like, is... <laughs> <laughs> such a <laughs> you sneaky bastard. That was that's cheating. But it's all right, like, I'll give it like, to you. Is it's basically like, do I get along with this person? Can I like hang yeah. out with this person? Can I have dinner? Can I get on a plane with this guy and have fun? You know, so right? actually, in the lightning round, I have a question that just says "asshole CEOs?" Question mark. Yeah, it's a good question. So I, how yeah. do you think about that? Is it yeah. an automatic no? Because it doesn't sound like it. It's not an automatic no because it's hard. Because well, the thing is. I work closely with my founders. Like mm-hmm. they're here in my office. You can see them. They're right yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. And so do I want to work with an asshole? Hell no. Right. Um but but there are people who are like a bit just like prickly, 
Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I have to decide whether I want to work with people that are prickly. And oftentimes, um, one of the nice things about being the early investor, I'm usually, you know, I'm the first person to believe in them. But we always have a special bond. And founders, yeah, I had a, I, I had lunch with a founder a couple of days ago uh, that I backed and he's gone on to raise one and a half billion dollars. And, um, and it's still always, I think I know who you're talking about, but it's still like always that special bond of like, yeah, you were the first one to believe in me. Like I always have time for you. And so, um, I think because of that, it's easier for me to work folks that are prickly. Now assholes, I do not tolerate assholes are people that like, you know, make life miserable for the other people that I'm working with. And that's not, that's not cool. But, um, I have had success with folks that are a little bit prickly. Is that just pattern recognition and a certain amount of like, you just know if a guy's a, or a, a founder is a complete asshole or just a little prickly? I mean, it's just like, yeah, and let's some, just talk about it that out. Is also like, some of that is also right or wrong. You need to have a certain level of confidence to be yeah. able to do this and raise money and yeah. all that stuff. So, yeah, it is what it is. So... You have either yourself or 500 written some checks into some really interesting companies that I, I kind of look at as fintech. Yeah. Because I think you can like you can make the argument that fintech is this very wide thing, right? A lot of companies become fintech companies over time. So one example of that maybe, uh, and I'm pretty sure this is who you were hinting at, but I'm curious. Um, could you walk me through kind of like the early stage four T's around one of two companies, pick one, um, either Flexport yeah. or Neighborly? Yeah, let's let's pick um, Flexport. I actually didn't do the investment in Neighborly. It ah. uh, it just predated me. Oh, okay, gotcha, so, gotcha, gotcha. I know Jason. I'm close with him, but he's from KC. Is the only yeah, reason I, I picked it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about Flexport. Uh, and yeah, you're right. That's, that's who I had lunch with a couple days ago. There's not that um, many people that have raised that much, so yeah. Kind of figured. So um, so Flexport, for those of you who don't know, is a in the customs logistics space. Um, started out as a freight forwarder. Um, and Ryan, the founder, is just exceptional. He started previous businesses uh, in a related space. He start, actually started a, he also lived in China and did Im- importing from China and then started a business called Import Genius that took all this public records of import data. And then, uh, and then wanted to start Flexport. And I met him really early on in his journey. It was just him as a founder. He didn't have any I was gonna employees. ask, I mean, he, this all, the journey started as a solo founder, right? Solo founder. Yeah. Outsource team. Oh wow! Yeah, I didn't know to that part. Yeah, that's unique. Philippines. Yeah. Huh? That he knew previously, or just con- contracted with? Contract with. Yeah. That may be like the most successful startup in the history of outsource development, or something. No, like. no. The secret is everybody tells you you can't make it work with outsource development team, or you shouldn't. I did that, a year as a product manager in an outsource development firm, so uh, this is so it's interesting um, to me. So everybody says that, but actually, even very technical teams. WhatsApp, a lot of their stuff was outsourced. And um, you can make it work. Now, I don't think it's a long-term solution. and I, You definitely need to have a sure. CTO and a very technical team in-house. But for a lot of businesses, it's totally fine to start out outsourcing it if you, if you can. Huh. I mean, as hot as contrarianism is in the Valley right now, is that, I mean, this feels like a contrarian point of view, right? Like probably most people aren't walking around the Valley saying, yeah, outsource it. Or at least in the early yeah. days, right? Like that's and, not. And nobody talks about these stories, so yeah, it's it's interesting. 
That's fascinating. I had absolutely no idea. I assumed um, he was like in some, you know, some lair with 18,000 developers building yeah, the future. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, so let's talk about the T. So T, like, love the guy. So he and I instantly hit it off on being very hacky people that try to figure out things like how to yeah. save money, stuff like that. Yeah. And so instantly hit it off. Love him as a founder. Um, technology, yeah, like they're taking a shitty offline world of paper and pen and faxing online so it's a technology solution traction didn't have much but this is where you can have the team really overpower that mm-hmm. where like i love sean or i love ryan rather yeah uh and ryan had started a similar business before and i knew he'd be able to make it work sure and um an addressable market you Pretty me? damn big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can skip over that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then also from kind of from the earliest days of meeting him, I said, hey, you should be a lender. And uh, so this is how it becomes fintech. Yeah, exactly. And okay. basically, if you're doing all the, all the, the stuff, you have distribution, underwriting, and collections, basically all from the stuff that he does as a shipper. So it, it made a lot of sense and it's doing really well. So I think one of the things that like has been true through this whole conversation and seems to just be like kind of what gets you out of bed every day is leveling the playing field, right? Like Flexport's bringing technology to companies, leveling totally. the playing field in a lot of different ways that people don't think of maybe as like banking the underbanked, but it's bringing technology oh, it's to a, a group. it's a lot of people's lives re- a lot easier right? and, and, and saving them from after f- having to fight for things that they shouldn't have to. So that's something that really resonates with me just in terms of why I get out of bed every day. So having had a few conversations with portfolio companies of yours, um, specifically Trent at Track, he was just kind of like, the guy cares about the world was the biggest thing that he kind of kept iterating to me cool. over and yeah, over yeah, and yeah. over again. So with that, let's kind of jump into bank versus banking the underbanked. What is the root cause of the underbanked population in the U.S.? Yeah. From your um, perspective. It's a good question. So I think the cause and the solution are related, which is it's just expen- it's expensive to serve poor people. Hmm. And I saw this firsthand with Kiva because I was, you know, sometimes I was to serve a single borrower in India. I was like taking a bus and then getting on the back of somebody's motorcycle to, to meet a farmer. And that is really expensive. Mm-hmm. So if it's a small dollar loan and you have to go pick up the money every week, it's going to be a real expensive loan. Um, and so, you know, we like to think about APRs, like people always talk about APRs, but like that's not, like there's a cost to servicing a loan. And so if it's a small dollar loan, APR is not the right way to think about it. But unfortunately, it's what we have. So um, so part of the reason that um, we have an underbank population is it's just they're so expensive to serve, which is why technology is really exciting because technology can drastically lower the cost to serve it. So um, one of the founders of Kiva, Matt Flannery, started a company called Branch. Branch actually um, is a mobile app live in um, now probably almost a dozen countries maybe that um, you can download the app. It takes in all your data from your Android phone, uh, like who you call, how often you all these, how often you top up your minutes, and it gives you a loan just based on the data on your phone. So that takes that underwriting and repayment thing from like a person having to go to your house to collect the money to like it all happens electronically it's easy 
and mobile money enables that. Is the step before all of that making sure that humans can be identified as humans? You got it. Identity is so critical. And in the U.S., we don't think about it that much. Like, we have an identification system. We're a high-trust society. In low-trust environments, identity is everything, and fraud is a big problem. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even in the U.S., right? Even, like, it, for you and me sitting in 500 offices and me as a white male and you as you know, yeah, a successful yeah, 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 yeah. male, I mean, it's, it's easy for us to, like, sure. separate ourselves from that. But, I mean, we're in San Francisco. Like, I imagine a number of people that I walked by coming in probably have no sense of database authority inside of the U.S. federal system, right? Absolutely. Yeah, identi- identity is really critical. And um, and with that, like, it's it's funny because it's something that I never thought about growing up mm-hmm. as, like, a privileged person. Like right. Said. But it's it's critical. Just purely, knowing somebody who's curious. Th- so knowing somebody's who they say they are, like, without that, you can't have banking. You nailed it. Okay, let's jump into kind of a quick fire round. I know we're coming up on time, but I just have so many damn questions yeah, for yeah, you. I yeah. can't really help it. Um, okay. So I'm going to try and click through the ones that really matter here. Um, first one is really kind of personal for me, and I think it'll help other people that are listening as well. This is kind of from my perspective as an MD asking a more experienced MD uh, of an accelerator. If you're saying no to somebody or if you're providing no with feedback that is like no because of this, yeah. how do you how do you do that? Is it a call? Is it an email? As much as you're seeing, yeah. like, how do you navigate that yeah, yeah, process? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's almost always an email for me. Um, we just have too much volume for it to be anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any lessons like, learned or yeah i like to be actually the, the biggest lesson is i like to reject during the meeting in person if i know it's a no i'll reject them during the meeting and that i thought was harsh it has gone really well where people get back to me and they're like you're the only person who told me what they were actually thinking everybody else just left me hanging so that's done really well for me and and people even people that i've rejected um have referred me companies that I accepted. So that's gone really well for me. Is that a, like, you must walk out of those meetings with a, a load off, right? Like you don't have to send them an email later yeah. saying, oh, by the it. way. That load sucks because it's like constantly at the back of your mind. You got to reject somebody. Yeah. So and with the, with the volume you see, I mean, that load seems like it would be huge. I don't think yeah. I could handle that. I mean, I have to tell people no decently often as well, but for, you know, it's not 4,000, uh, you know, crazy, applications yeah, yeah, a year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. FinTech Charter. Do you think if the fintech charter happened that that would be a good thing, a bad thing? Do you think that fintechs really want to be chartered banks? Well, the fintech charter, the OCC fintech charter that came out last August, that was not really a chartered bank. Right, right, right. right. Um, but it'd be a great move. It'd be an amazing move because um, right now, uh, money transmission and lending are regulated at a state level. So... If you want to transmit money across state lines, you have to get a money transmitter license. It's very expensive and and time consuming. Um, Theoretically, the FinTech Charter would make it a national deal. Um, Same is true for lending. So those would be great opportunities. Um, Do your other question was like, should should all these institutions become banks? Or do they even want to be? Like it depends on what a bank means because yeah. like chime, a bank maybe Chime as an example like what do you Chime th- probably like look they want to make money on net interest margin why mm-hmm. wouldn't you um, and you know the the game of being a banker is like 
you lend money in long durations and you take deposits on short durations mm -hmm. and you make a margin, like the net interest. And uh, that's more money than you make on interchange yep. or just deposit. Like, so yep. ultimately I think these guys probably will want a charter. Yeah. I mean, they're unbundling only portions of the profit, right? Yeah. Like there's so much left inside of the bank. Yeah. So Shiel, put yourself in the, not a big bank CEO, but put yourself in the shoes of a community bank CEO that like actually could change something over the next five years if you were to step into that role. What, yeah. How would you handle the strategy of a community bank over the next five years? Yeah, so I like, no bullshit. I think you guys are doing, like you from from having having spoken to you several times, I think like, it's the right way to do it. It's like the API bank is... For clarity, this is not what I expected you to say, just yeah. for the record, and I will pay you later, but... Yeah. No, I think, like, I think, look, uh, we were talking about it before this, before we started chatting here. Uh, there are something like 6,000 banks in America. Um, 5,000 of them plus are subscale. And yet, trying to be everything to everyone. So, like, it used to be hundreds of years ago, like even more recently, but, but um, you went to a particular bank if you were a farmer or a particular bank if you were a landowner and they were different banks that were specialized. Yeah. Now all these 6,000 banks in America are pretty much trying to offer the same services as all the other ones. Everybody wants to be the full stack everything. Everyone wants to be full stack everything. Yeah. And that doesn't make sense to me. So I think if you're, if you're a smaller bank, specialize is one way to go. The other way to go that I think is really exciting, I think like what you guys are making some pretty good moves in is becoming that, that providing that banking solution that other people can use and other people can go out and attract customers for you. I think that's super powerful. So in my research, I dug up that you're apparently co-invested alongside a number of people. One that I literally spat out the water that I was drinking when I found out was Chameleon Air. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, Chameleon Air, actually, he, um, he's very active in the VC world. He comes to all of our, all of our demo days and stuff. That is, what is it like when he's, Chameleon he's Air walks nice, into a demo day room? He's actually a super nice guy. Okay. He's super chill. So it's not like DJ Khaled walking in the room. He just no, screams, no, nothing no, like no. that. Okay. So the, the question is, because just the idea of Chameleon Air, like writing checks into Stripe, like it's yeah, just yeah, the yeah. funniest thing in the fucking world to me. So the question is, who is the most ridiculous person or like the most ridiculous story of a co-investment for you? Um, we have like actually this the first thing that comes to mind is one of my companies that's closing a series B right now they're from our accelerator a few batches ago or, or now actually many batches ago um, they have Ashton's actually a pretty good investor he's invested in Neighborly Ashton yeah Kutcher. he's in uh, Dwalla too yeah, yeah. Um, he's pretty good and actually helpful but then there's also like all these other people that are like don't aren't necessarily yeah. going to be helpful. Ashton has like a good reputation now, right? Like he's, yeah. I actually like think of him as an angel investor. When you say to me that chameleon is on your cap table, I'm a yeah, little like caught why? off guard. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he actually had a fund. Um, uh, chameleon had a fund. Yeah. What was it called? Knightsbridge. Oh, that's not as exciting yeah, as I yeah, thought yeah, it was yeah, going to yeah, be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, who's interesting? I have, I have a bunch of the warriors in a couple of my companies. Cool. Um, kind of randomly. I have one with, with just really randomly in, in this current company. I, I'm not going to talk about because it hasn't closed yet, but um, 
Jimmy Fallon just heard about what? it and was like, can I write a $50,000 check? We're like, sure. That's like a pretty small check for this round. And we're actually way over subscriber. We're like, yeah, okay, sure. Jimmy Fallon, yeah, why not? Could see that working out in yeah. the advantage of the startup over time. Maybe. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay, so the last question is very basic, and it is stolen from One Million Cups, which was founded in Kansas City. And it is simply, what can the listenership, what can the audience do to help you? Oh, man. Um, follow me on social media. <laughs> I don't know. That's a weird thing to say. <laughs> but follow me on SoundCloud kind of thing? Yeah, follow yeah. me on SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, uh, I think... Or like, what do you want more of in the world? Maybe that's the right, like you know. People building interesting businesses and like thinking about cool things, working at my startups. <laughs> <They all laughs> yeah. So what's the best way to like get in touch with you and kind of learn about the right startups to work at and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, uh, probably Twitter, Pit Dissy. It's a weird one, P-I-T-D-E-S-I. Um, and you could try to email me. You I, could try to email no, no, no. me. <laughs> I, I apologize. I just get like I I'm always swamped, and I'm just it's hard. I'm just always swamped. I think like I think I didn't respond to you the first time you messaged me. I feel bad about it now. You should. I should. You're, you're just sitting across the table from each other. I'm just laying the guilt on you. Yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling <laughs> heat, man. Nah, you're a busy guy. Yeah. Speaking of that, thank you for the time doing Absolutely. this. Absolutely, it's man. really fun. This has been awesome. Yeah, it's really fun. All right, thank cool. you, Shil. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another episode of For Fintech's Sake. To find out about more episodes coming out week after week, please subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you're listening on, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc., etc. If you're looking to get in touch, you can reach out to me personally on Twitter at Zach Pettit, Z-A-C-H-P-E-T-T-E-T. You can reach out, reach out to the show at For Fintech's Sake. You can find us online at forfintechsake.com. And if you're looking to get in touch with me personally about Fountain City Fintech, the podcast, or anything else, you can reach out to me via email at zach.pettit at nbkc.com. And again, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps us get in front of other folks and kind of help other people learn more things about fintech. Thank you, and we will talk to you next week.